This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Benedikte Irgens. I am a teaching professor of Japanese linguistics at the University of Bergen. And with me today are two scholars of Japan. It's Professor Paul Medford, who is at the Norwegian Institute of Science and Technology, NTNU in Trondheim. He is an expert on political science. And the other one is Dick Stegevans, who is an associate professor at the University of Oslo, an expert on Japanese history. And we are here to talk about Japanese politics. And I would like to start by asking Paul Medford about his interest in this topic. I mean, you are a political scientist and you're an expert on Japan. So obviously this is in the middle of your field. But what I'm wondering about is what made you interested? Was it your a position as a political scientist, or was it your Japan interest? Which came first of these two? Well, actually, I think my interest in East Asia came first. I uh, grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles, and many of my classmates were from East Asia. Some were from Japan, many were actually from Taiwan, and I became interested in East Asia because of that, and I was interested in international politics, and I was active in Model UN, and one thing led to another. Originally, I was actually more interested in Soviet policy in East Asia, and then I went to graduate school, and the Cold War ended, and I ended up getting a scholarship and moving to Japan, and, and my interest, I gradually kind of moved from from Soviet studies into Japanese studies over time. Thank you. And what about you, Dick? What led you into this interest in Japan in general, but also Japanese politics? I come from a uh, tradition called the uh, Japanology, where things like an academic discipline so much in focus. And I ended up in Japanese studies uh, through a uh, film. And when I was young and had to decide what to do, the early 1980s, let's say most of East Asia was invisible. And then also like in the art houses, Asian film, East Asian film would be 100% uh, Japanese. And I don't know what, probably in, in a Protestant state of mind, I decided not to focus on what I thought was my hobby film. So then I focused on Japanese history and ended up doing uh, modern Japanese uh, history, intellectual history, political history. And I guess also anybody with an interest in Japan is curious about what goes on on the political level in the country. There has been a change recently, which is the main reason that we're making this podcast. Paul, could you tell us about this change? What is it? Is it a different party coming into power or what is it all about? Well, the change is that uh, Japan's longest serving prime minister, Abe Shinzo, resigned in August, stepped down in September. And his chief cabinet secretary, who's like the number two in his cabinet, took over as prime minister. So this is a continuation of the same party, but a change in prime minister. And there was an election within the LDP in early September in which Suga Shihide was competing against several other candidates within the LDP publicly to succeed Abe as the president of the LDP. And uh, Suga won that competition. Therefore, because his party has a majority in the lower house of the diet, automatically became prime minister. So it's um, not a change in party. It's a change in cabinet and prime minister. But many of the members of cabinet actually continued from the previous cabinet with a few ch notable changes. And the main question we want to ask ourselves, of course, is does this actually mean a change for Japan in any substantial way? What do you think, Dick? Will it change? Or is this just a continuation of what we have been seeing for a long time? Well, so since Suga has been the face of the Abe cabinet for such a long time, I guess the emphasis is on the uh, continuity. And this is actually something that has been emphasized by the people involved 
themselves. Abe chose for continuity by having uh, Suga, and Suga up until now also has stayed very close in his outings to previous policies. So of the Abe cabinet, he has definitely not been using words like uh, revolution or, uh, or reform. But so nonetheless, we should be aware that Suga is a different face from Prime Minister Abe. Abe was a relatively outspoken, I would say even controversial figure because, yeah, he has some quite outspoken political views in terms of national identity, which he, let's say, has vented predominantly when he's not in the position of prime minister. So he knows what it involves to function as a slightly more neutral political leader. But nonetheless, everybody knows where true feelings are. So in that sense, Suga is more uh, neutral. So that may be slightly easier. Now, they are quite different in types, these two, Abe and Suga. And so even if the policies continue and everything, it makes me a little bit curious about what kind of relationship they can develop with other countries and questions about foreign policy, for example. How will he be able to deal with foreign policy contacts with other countries? You have written books and made research about Japan and foreign policy, Paul. Do you have anything to explain to us in terms of this? How will he be able to develop Japanese foreign policy also considering the type of person that he is. Yes. Well, of course, just speaking about the type of person he is, he's quite different from Abe um, in the sense he does not come from a long line of politicians. His father was not a politician. His grandfather wasn't a politician, unlike Abe, whose grandfather was actually prime minister. So Suga comes from a kind of more humble, uh, non-political background. That might make it harder for him to deal with other political leaders who maybe come from a more elite background or whose parents were politicians, like, for example, President Xi Jinping of China, perhaps. But more generally, I think, in a way, Suga is kind of lucky that uh, the U.S. presidential election turned out with Biden winning, because one of the biggest assets that Abe and Japan had had was that Abe had had some success. I mean, perhaps limited success would be a, a good term, but nonetheless, compared to other world leaders, some success cultivating a personal relationship with Donald Trump. And I could not see Prime Minister Tsuga cultivating that kind of personal relationship. And so we could imagine that the relationship would have gone downhill. Now, interestingly, Tsuga's background is sort of like that of incoming President Joe Biden coming from a relatively more humble background. So they might actually be able to hit it off very well. Beyond that, I don't think the the political relation uh, that um, the personal relationship between the two is going to matter as much as it did in the case of Abe and Donald Trump. I think Biden is probably more of an institutionalist, and therefore he's going to focus more on the overall relationship rather than their personal relationship. On the other hand, I do expect, despite what I just said about maybe some differences with Xi Jinping, that the relationship with China will probably continue relatively strong, partly because, you know, Abe already set in motion the improvement of the relationship. And all the signs are that Suga wants to continue that, even despite criticism within his own party. I noticed there was an LDP meeting yesterday that was expressing anger that foreign minister Mr. Wang was visiting Japan. So even despite some, you know, recriminations from his own base, I expect that uh, Suga will continue to maintain a somewhat improved relationship with China. Now, this is uh, within the context of the fact that the relationship got much worse after the island dispute between the two countries blew up in 2012. And I don't see it going back to where it was before 2012. But post-2012, it's as good now as it's ever been. And I think Suga wants to continue that. We're going to see probably Xi Jinping visiting soon. 
And one other thing within the LDP that's also important to note is that Secretary General Nikai, who's really an important figure who played a big role in Suga succeeding Abe, is himself relatively close to China and is also committed to seeing the relationship at least maintain an even keel, if not improve further. The party that is ruling now, the LDP, have been in power for most of the post-war time up until today. And it is a sort of right-leaning conservative party. Critics will say that it's very far right and it's nationalist and some are worried about this development that this never moves in that direction. I would like to talk about that with Dick a little bit, concerned with sort of national identity and also Japan's history, war history, etc. Do you think it is correct to say that we have to do with a sort of strongly rightist government in Japan or is that sort of exaggerating things? That's the first question I'd like to ask you about this topic. Well, the LDP is a Cold War product. In the Cold War, you are either right or left. And within that very clear division, so in the Japanese case, Japan represented the capitalist camp, the right. And because it was that there was a choice between a rightist party and a leftist party, and because the majority of the Japanese are not leftists. And this is with the Cold War structure, LDP, so could stay ruling though for this very, very long time. However, the Cold War has ended. Also, other elements so that sustained this so-called 1955 system are no longer there. We do no longer have this economic growth and a lot of money that, uh, you know, surplus money that needs to be uh, divided. It's a different world out there. And so within this different world, I think that the left-right divide is not so important anymore. We've seen this in many countries. And also Japan, in essence, is heading towards more so too big party system where either the LDP or then the other main party could function as let's say relatively middle of the road party. Also so like the huge majority of the voters is no longer institutionally connected to one political party and the electoral system changed so after the end of the Cold War in such a fundamental way that it now also is possible for another political party with let's say a charismatic or popular political leader so to acquire sufficient support to win the election. So in that sense, and we've already seen uh, the LDP have been out of power for a while, this could happen again. And one thing that I have noticed as I have been following Japanese politics is this controversy around the Yasukuni shrine in Tokyo, which has received visits from LDP politicians, but never from politicians from other parties. And this sort of strengthens the impression of this nationalism. Do you think Suga would go to Yasukuni, Paul? What do you think about that? No, I don't think he would. I think my impression is that Suga is being a less kind of clear, in-your-face, kind of militant nationalist than Abe was. Of course, Abe only went once as prime minister, which, and given his kind of clear nationalist profile, is in some ways surprisingly little, just one visit. So I don't expect Suga will go to Yasukuni. He may continue to send offerings to Yasukuni, as did Abe, without going in person. But no, I don't expect he will go. And I think that's part of his attempt to establish a somewhat less nationalist image. I think Dick was talking about that will help to smooth, continue to this improvement of relations with 
with China. I also think just the fact, again, that he's trying to maintain, if not improve the relationship with China, will mitigate against him going. And I actually think that's a really big influence. And just one other point about that. There was a lot of speculation until 2016 that the reason Abe was not going to Yasukuni was because of American pressure. Of course, the U.S. tried to pressure him not to go in 2013. That failed. After that, he never went again. But we know that during the Donald Trump administration, if he had gone to Yasukuni, the U.S. would have done nothing about it. So at this point, if there's a kind of external pressure or foreign policy consideration that's stopping Abe or any other Japanese prime minister from going to Yasukuni, it's going to be China. That is the reason why they're not going. Uh, that is so interesting to hear about. We should cover some more topics. I'm thinking um, one thing that it strikes me as a woman, maybe, is the fact that Japanese politics is very scarce in diversity. You have practically no, very few women, practically no people of other backgrounds in terms of, of nationality. There are some, but very few. There is also a very strong resistance towards giving foreign residents the right to vote. We, all of this is also maybe part of the reason that we sort of place the LDP and all of Japan on the sort of right side, if you like, very conservative. But what do you say about this, Dick? Do you think it is likely that it will be possible for foreign residents, for example, in local elections to get the right to vote? Is it still unthinkable in a country like Japan? I would not know the answer to this. What we do know is that so the coalition party for the LDP, so the, the Kormeto, clean government party, has part of its political basis in migrants, let's call them former migrants. So they have been more outspoken on the issue and we know that they support so that foreigners can also have a vote in local elections. But I think so that the last few years, probably because they're also aware that there is no majority for this in the LDP, I do not think that this issue has really been on the books. I think we need to know what Suga's opinion is about this. So I do not expect any swift progress or swift change in that field. However, Suga is known to have said to support change in gender issue. So at this moment, it's very, very difficult for women to hold on to their maiden name after marriage. And so Suga, I think this is four or five years ago, maybe even further back, has said so that he would support a change. And actually, so this is an issue is right now being taken up and probably there will be a main issue in Parliament early next year. Yes, this question of diversity, you know, it's definitely something that is going to push itself forward after a while. But at this point, it seems to be kind of a slow development. What do you think about this, Paul? One remarkable thing about the Abe administration, even though it has this reputation for being kind of right-wing and hawkish and conservative, is that it perhaps did more than any, uh, than any other recent administration to kind of recognize the role of, of foreigners, non-Japanese, in Japanese society, particularly in 2018, it enacted a major reform to Japan's immigration law that essentially created an official open guest worker program for the first time. And I think that is an indicator that even the LDP recognizes that, you know, foreigners or non-Japanese are an integral part of the society, make a real contribution. And also just something this week under the Suga administration that's also interesting. Up until now, if you're a long-term resident of Japan, 
and your relatives overseas pass away and you receive inheritance, you have to pay Japanese inheritance tax on that overseas property. They're now moving to lift that to attract more foreign immigrants and long-term residents to Japan. Now, this is said to be particularly aimed at those who work in the financial industry and are kind of highly trained, professional, maybe very well-off uh, immigrants. So you could say it's kind of an elitist proposal, but still, I think that's a sign, this uh, attempt to kind of appeal and more to uh, foreign labor, particularly those who are professional and, and talented, which other countries are trying to do. And it's going to be tough for Japan actually to compete with many other countries. But I think that's an indicator of kind of greater acceptance, uh, non-Japanese. Yeah. Right. And I think from my point of view, it looks a little bit as though Japan finally realized it has to do these things. So it's not really progressive in any way, but reality comes pushing. And so things have to change because of the way reality is. But and then finally, they realize this, etc. So this is all the question of perspective you have, of course. Dick, do you have any comments to this topic? Yeah, well, I think that many foreigners living in Japan, so during this year, have had a rather negative experience in the sense that the message that they are not equal to people of Japanese citizenship, no matter how long you know, they have lived there, maybe even that were born there, has been so bluntly and dramatically in their face that I'm not sure so to which extent so we can really be optimistic. So it is true that politics has become aware due to so an, an economic need, depopulation, they need more laborers, that they have to shift some things. So but the way they treat it, so people of non-Japanese citizenship, though in various uh, anti-COVID measures has been inhumane and has been exceptional, so paired at least to European countries that I do know, it's also made it pretty much impossible for me to visit the country yet. So yeah, I don't think that we all can be, <laughs> let's say, outspokenly optimistic about being uh, more treated equally in Japan. So after this very sore uh, experience. Yes, Paul, do you have a comment? I was just going to say, I certainly agree with that, that um, uh, long-term foreign residents of Japan have not been treated very well in terms of being prevented from re-entering the country for many months. And even now, the requirements are different than they are for Japanese re-entering. But I also would reiterate the point you made that the changes I was talking about are driven by pragmatism. They're driven, we said, by this need for recognition that Japan needs to import or have more foreign workers in order for the economy to function. So it's not so much a normative change as it is driven by pragmatism. Nonetheless, I would at least say that pragmatism is at least kind of refreshing given that it's in stark contrast to what's happening in many other countries of the world, the US and in Europe, where even in the face of pragmatism, kind of self-defeating measures are being put in place to actually limit immigration. So I would say I'm, I don't want to exaggerate how optimistic I am, but I'm at least on that basis cautiously optimistic. I definitely see your point there. This is a striking feature of Japanese politics in general, that it's not very ideologically driven at all. And that is has sometimes to be been a little bit disturbing. But at the same time, the good side is that you get people who are very pragmatically oriented and who just want to find things, you know, policies that work that are good for the population, etc. So sometimes this lack of ideology is actually a good thing. We have now covered several topics. We could have continued and continued and continued, I think, because there's so much 
possible to talk about here. Maybe if you could just let me know about your sort of main interest or your main concern from now on. What is it that you're going to pay special attention to as time passes now with this new administration? Maybe, Paul, if you could start. Well, one thing I'm really interested in is maybe a bit narrow, but I think very important, energy policy and and policy towards the environment. The Abe administration had a reputation for being kind of opposed to renewable energy and very pro-nuclear. That actually think that reputation isn't entirely accurate in the sense that, A, they're public statements. If you actually look at them, they talked about reducing nuclear power as much as possible, which sounds pretty vague, certainly compared to the opposition parties. But nonetheless, they have not been really pushing for that much restoration of nuclear power. And meanwhile, they have been continuing to promote renewables. Renewable energy, solar and wind have been growing at a very healthy clip in Japan. And actually the government already earlier this year as a COVID measure included new subsidies for renewable energy in their COVID economic relief package. And the current administration appears to want to extend that. Also the Abe administration is the first major country in the world to adopt a national hydrogen strategy for moving to the so-called hydrogen economy. And without going into too many details, hydrogen is a very important technology or way to store electricity from like renewable wind and solar, and therefore is very important for helping to make this transition to a zero carbon emission economy. So in that sense, I think that's something interesting to watch to see whether that continues and how it develops. Dick, how about you? Um, in my point of view, many democracies, so after the end of the, of the Cold War, I would term TV democracies or maybe media democracies nowadays. And so where you can build up quite strong position merely on the basis of whether you are media-wise. And I don't think that so new Prime Minister Suga is so media-wise. It's clear that he lacks charisma. He knows how to handle the Japanese political game. He's been in there for 45 years. So in that sense, he can run the system. But so within the present electoral system, you also need uh, some popularity in order to sustain yourself. So in that sense, my main focus will be in whether he can become popular leader, and if not, so who then are going to be his competitors, so both within the LDP and outside. Thanks to Paul Midford and Dick Stegerans, both Japan scholars at Norwegian universities. My name is Benedikt Eregens from the University of Bergen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration and studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.